Welcome back to First Peter. As many of you know, we have been working through the book of First Peter over this past year, and uh, we took the last six weeks off to talk about Christ and culture, and now we start back again into the next section of First Peter. But just as a way of review, um, let me just remind you the first section that we looked at in First Peter, uh, we had. Uh, looked at under the theme of captured by glory, captured by glory. And we talked about God's glory, the work of salvation, how we have living hope, what we see in Christ. And and the desire was just for us to draw near and, and to soak in, abide in, savor the glory of God. And then the second section that we looked at, the theme was transformed by glory, And and that's a very natural progression as we look at uh, having uh, been soaking in, beholding the glory of God, how that glory begins to transform us and work in us and through us, changing us, changing our thoughts, our words, our actions, our priorities, our feelings. And if you remember back uh, to the last two messages Pastor Andrew preached in the book of 1 Peter, uh, the, the next to last one was on our true identity. Our true identity, and it was taken from 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, which reads, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And and you could begin to imagine the impact of those words on the the original audience, if you remember. Uh, They are Christians that have been scattered throughout Asia Minor, uh, also struggling, uh, facing persecution, opposition, struggling with poverty. And, And so to hear those words from Peter reminding them of who they are in Christ, And then you remember the last sermon that Pastor Andrew shared was on our true citizenship, our true citizenship taken from 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12, which reads, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so it's kind of interesting now, after we see our our true identity, our true citizenship, as we're moving forward, after he's uh, reaffirmed all these things in our hearts and minds, Peter kind of takes a sharp turn. After talking about all of this, he he then calls us to live as free slaves or, or to live in voluntary subjection as one of the primary ways we keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Or to go with this this section's theme, one of the primary ways that we're reflecting God's glory. And throughout the rest of this book, throughout the rest of 1 Peter, we will see uh, Peter call believers to voluntary subjection. Uh, this morning we'll look at our call uh, or command to voluntary subjection to all human institutions, but then we'll eventually look at business dealings as he talks about slaves and masters. We'll look at it in families as he talks about husbands and wives, and, and eventually talk about it even in the church with the elders and with each other. 
And so that's the, the direction that we're headed this morning. But before we jump in, would you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you. We come to you this morning asking you to open our hearts to the truth of your word. Do you make us able to receive it? Do you give us grace to be transformed by it? Father, we ask ultimately, even as we just sang, that in it we would see Christ. That as we behold his glory, as we're transformed by his glory, that we would have a desire to reflect that glory to the world around us. So, Father, we ask that you would do a work this morning, that your spirit would do a work in us, that we would be changed, that we would be better equipped to be the light you have called us to be. Father, we ask that you would do this not for our comfort or pleasure, but for your glory and for the glory of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So this morning we'll be in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. And if you'd like to use one of the Bibles that's in front of you or on a seat near you, uh, you can do that. It's on page 1015. 1015, that's 1015. Um, and as you're getting there, I hope you have had the opportunity to utilize the study guide this week. Um, coming up to this message. If you haven't, we have a plenty. They're on the Welcome Center. I'd encourage you to go by and pick one of those up. There, there actually are several things I'm not going to talk about this morning because they're covered in the study guide. So I hope you would make use of that to prepare your hearts and, and direct your hearts as you come into worship each week. So pick one of those up. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. Follow along as I read. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the emperor. And as we look at this this morning, there's really three main points I'd like for us to consider. The first is voluntary subjection is commanded. Voluntary subjection is commanded. And we see that in verses 13 and 14. And I'd like to just look at it phrase by phrase. The first thing we see is we're commanded to be subject. And that Greek term is hypotasso, and it's a military term primarily that talks about lining up military assets under their commander. And, and so that's the concept that we have here of, of, of subjection, being in authority or being under authority. And the Greek itself, this verb is in the aorist imperative. Now, what that means is there's this sense of command, this sense of urgency in it. There's this sense of a call for a specific definitive, decisive choice. Uh, it kind of gives you the feeling of, of do this, do it now, do it once for all. You know, just having that, that urgency even in the command. And so it's very clear that, that Peter, and of course ultimately God, is commanding believers to voluntary subjection, to, to be in submission. And isn't it interesting? Because he just has talked about the fact that, that we are sojourners and exiles that this is not our home. This is not our kingdom. This is not where we're citizens. And yet, then he commands them to be in voluntary subjection, even to the authorities in this hostile, wicked 
world. And so this sense of subjection or, or submission is really uh, gives us the idea of being willing to um, set aside our own interests and be committed to seeking to serve others. Or, or in another way you could look at it is it calls us to set aside our rights or, or to give our rights over to another person. Now, when we talk about submission, that's always a delicate subject, but I, I think my favorite example of this concept uh, we see in the life of Jesus as a young man. And you might remember the story, Jesus and his family, they, they go up to Jerusalem for the Passover, and then you remember his family is on their way back to Jerusalem when he, they realize that Jesus isn't with them. And so his parents frantically head back to Jerusalem. They're searching for him. Finally, they find him. His mother says to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And then in Luke 2, 49 through 52, it says, And Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And so we see Jesus doing this very thing. Jesus putting himself in voluntary subjection, submitting to his parents. And, and honestly, you know, I was thinking even as we were singing, show us Christ. You, the, the truth is we could end the sermon right here. Jesus did it, so what else is there to say? Right? I, you know, I mean, we get a lot more of our day left, but I worked a lot on this, so we're not going out. But, <laughs> but, but isn't that really the point, right? That, that if Jesus, the Son of God, God himself came here to his creation and he submits himself under the authorities that are placed over him, really, well, there, there really isn't much more that we should need for convincing. But let's keep moving forward. Be subject for the Lord's sake. That second phrase, for the Lord's sake. And as we look at this, trying to discern what for the Lord's sake means, the, the reality is it's best for us to keep in mind that this passage falls between verses 12 and 15. We, we just read both of them, but, but look again at, at, chapter, at verse 12. It says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. And verse 15, which we'll look at some more, says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so we're commanded to be subject for the Lord's sake. And that understanding is that ultimately, we are the reflection of God here, right? We should be reflecting God's glory. What we say, what we do should be reflecting who God is. And so we should be in subjection for the Lord's sake. Uh, there's a, a commentary I want to commend to you. It's called The Message on First Peter. It's by Edmund Clowney. And there are going to be a number of quotes in today's sermon from that you'll, that you'll get to see. I'd encourage you to pick that up. If you would like to, to study First Peter a little more, it's an excellent series. It's very accessible, meaning it's easy to read, but yet still very deep. So I, I'll give you a few quotes. Hopefully it'll whet your appetite, but I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Um, so here's Edmund Clowney's take on for the Lord's sake. He says, for the Lord's sake implies then that our obedience serves God's purpose. By our civil obedience, we silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Christians were often charged with subversion of the established order. 
They were accused of spreading disloyalty against the government, of disrupting trade, of all manner of shocking practices, including cannibalism and incest. By their law-abiding conduct, they could reveal the lie of such wild and ignorant accusations. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like today? I mean, the truth is, Christianity is constantly getting bad press. You know, whether, you know, recently it's the, about the rise of Christian nationalism or the rise in Christians against Christian nationalism, right? I mean, there's just constantly, whether it's the Capitol riot that was all about Christians being the ones there and all the signs they were holding, all of the things that are going on culturally, Christianity is, is continually portrayed in a negative light. And, and honestly, I, truthfully, I, I had this written originally in my notes. It said, everything in Edmund Clowney's list has probably been said about Christians and Christianity this year, uh, except maybe not cannibalism. But I googled it. And October 2020, on a website called Parlia, which is a website devoted to sharing opinions and debating, uh, we come across this article on Christianity and cannibalism. And, and here's a quote from the website. Cannibalism in Christianity is advocated by one of the central people the religion is associated with. In the Gospel of John, in the New Testament of the Bible, Jesus explicitly states that it's only through the eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood that the world will be saved. If the practice of cannibalism is so taboo, then why would the very figurehead of Christianity himself advocate for it? So I stand corrected. Everything that Edmund Clowney says was being said about us back in the beginning of the church is still being said today. Right? And, and, and so, with, with that said, we, we see here Peter, and, and again, ultimately God, commanding us to live voluntarily subjective lives so that we're such exemplary citizens. We're, we're, so, we're such a good model or example for the world that, that our good deeds help reveal all of these lies about Christianity and, and silence them. And we're going to talk more about that later. But, but that's for the Lord's sake. Then we get to the third phrase, to every human institution, to every human institution. Now, the Greek here uh, could literally be translated that, that we should be subject for the Lord's sake to every human creature. But, but most translations use something like human institution because according to context, it's very clear that uh, Peter is talking about human creatures that have been placed in a position of authority. But I, again, I really appreciate Edmund Clowney's insight when he says this. He says, Peter is not talking about submission to institutions, but submission to people. To people, however, who have been given roles to fill in God's appointment, our submission is to creatures of God made in his image. The particular submission that we owe another will vary according to the role that the person fills in the divine ordering of human life. And we'll talk about that briefly again. But, but so the underlying picture that we have here is that we're commanded to voluntary subjection for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And that means every sphere of influence. So, so it can be government or politics. Uh, it could be to the police or, or other legal entities. It could be to the courts. Uh, it, after this year, it could be the health department, right? It could be business, education, military, family, any place that we find ourselves living in a, a, a chain where there's authority that's been placed over us, we're called 
to be subject or voluntarily submit ourselves for the Lord's sake in every one of those areas. Now, I suspect you might be saying, but what about all the unjust things and all the unjust governments and all the unjust, you know, is that it says to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, that's true, okay? But let me give you another quote from Edmund Clowney. It says, Peter could speak of the Roman government in spite of its exploitive economic practices and its curtailing of liberty as a government that punished those who did wrong and commended those who did right. Clearly, he does not imply that the perfect justice of Messiah's reign was executed by Nero. Nor does he encourage civil disobedience until Nero's administration of justice improved. So, so in other words, there, there was more law and order because of the Roman government than there would be without it. However, there, there's absolutely no uh, pretense here with Peter that the Roman government was doing a good job, that they were just, that they were in any way godly, or, or that in any way how they were functioning was even pleasing to God. As a matter of fact, Peter himself and Paul as well would be eventually martyred under their hands. But, but we see in the context even of 1 Peter that it's very clear that our call to subjection is not dependent on the other, at the other party's uh, condition. Look at, look at these verses. 1 Peter 2.18, which we'll get there, uh, we guess, next week. But it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so just in the context of 1 Peter itself, it's very clear, Peter knows exactly what he's saying when he says, you are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Right? He, he knows exactly what he's saying, and he knows exactly the environment in which he is commanding, and again, ultimately God commanding, those believers to walk in voluntary subjection. Now, does that mean there's no examples of exceptions? Well, well, there is, and Peter, actually himself, gives us a perfect example of an exception. Let's look at it. In Acts, starting in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 18, it says, so they, being the religious leaders, called them, being the apostles, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. We cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And then not long after that, if you remember, they're arrested again, and the religious leaders come to them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now, you remember, Jesus had, had told them in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
And in Acts 1, verses 6 through 8, we see it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so this conflict comes, right? Because Jesus says, go and make disciples. Go and baptize them in my name. Go and teach them everything I've commanded you. Go and be my witnesses. Tell them what you've seen, what you've experienced. Tell them about me. And the religious leaders say, do not teach in the name of Jesus. Do not speak the name of Jesus. Don't talk about Jesus. So Peter and the apostles could only obey one of these mutually exclusive commands. They had to choose to obey either Jesus or the religious leaders. So, of course, they said, we must obey God rather than men. But notice, the discussion is not about whether or not it was constitutional, whether or not it was comfortable, who has ultimate authority, were the authorities within their legal boundaries. There was really only one question Will this require us to violate or disobey a clear command of God? If the answer was yes, yes, it would require them to disobey a clear command of God, then honorable disobedience to the lesser authorities was required. And, and a humble, joyful willingness to accept the consequences. And you remember the consequences, right? Acts 5 40 and 41, it says, when they called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And so we see this, this honorable, humble, joyful acceptance of whatever consequences there were from, from showing honor even in their disobedience. But here's the truth. We're Americans. We're Americans. American. Right? We got rights. Now, I, I, I give you this, right? There, that we, as Americans, do have a privilege to humbly, legally, honorably live out our civic freedoms in a way that lifts up Christ and his kingdom. Okay? So you can write emails... You can engage in Christ-honoring civil discourse, and sometimes that's the hard part, Christ-honoring civil discourse. You can run for the school board or any other political position. You get to vote. But then ultimately, ultimately, we have to humbly accept the results that God chooses to bring to pass. So maybe at this point you're going, voluntary subjection, that does not sound voluntary. It's true. It's not voluntary in the sense of you get the choice of whether or not you do it. It's commanded. But, but it is voluntary because we are not really citizens of this world. We do have another kingdom. We have another king. We have other rights. We are not bound by the things of this world. We're called to a higher law. But, but let's look at this in the life of Jesus himself again. Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. It says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? 
And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. You see, we are citizens of another kingdom, but, but we voluntarily subject ourselves here, even as we see Jesus do it, because voluntary subjection is commanded. We have a true king, and that true king has called us to subject ourselves to the authorities here. Point number two, God's will is for us to do good. God's will is for us to do good. From verse 15, it says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, the first thing I want you to recognize is God has a plan to silence, or in the Greek it literally means to muzzle, the ignorance of foolish people. However, I have a news flash for you. It is not by ranting on your Facebook or some other social media. Okay? It's not by marching or rioting or protesting. It's not through advertising or hiring a better uh, public relations firm. That's not God's plan. God's plan, his will, is for you and for me, for our church, and for believers around our country and the world to do good. To do good. Read with me. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. One last passage. Hebrews 13, verses 14 through 16. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. But let me, let me be clear, okay? Putting to silence the ignorance of foolish people does not mean that we are going to win popular opinion. We're not going to gain the praise or appreciation of the world. No one's going to suddenly be like, oh, they're so good, we love Christianity. It's not going to happen. 
But, but what is going to happen is by doing good, we will remove the barriers that keep them from being offended by the truth, being offended by who Jesus is, being offended by the gospel. And, and so the reality is, if we do good, we'll just give them the freedom to hate us for the right reasons, Right? But, but praise the Lord, because if they are going to hate us, if they're going to hate Christianity, if they're going to be offended, then we want them to be offended by the truth. Look at John 3, 19 and 20. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. In John 15, verses 18 through 21, Jesus says, If the world hates me, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Sorry, if the world hates you, know it has hated me before it hated you. If you are the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So again, you see, as we do good, it's not going to suddenly make us popular or accepted, but they'll be able to be offended by the right things. They'll be able to come face to face with the gospel, with who Jesus is, and be able to make decisions about the right things, not about whether or not we're cannibals. Right? Okay? So, number three, point three. We're called to live as free slaves. We're called to live as free slaves in verses 16 and 17. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And, and it's interesting, the, the word here in living as servants of God, that, that Greek word is the same Greek word for slave. And, and so literally, it, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy. Peter says, live as people who are free, living as slaves of God. And that's the concept that we have. We're called to live as free slaves. I think we can see a very good and detailed parallel in Galatians chapter 5, where Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, 
As I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You see, we truly are free. We've been freed by Christ. But, but we're called not to use that freedom as an excuse for evil. And in the context in 1 Peter, the, the implications really are we're not to use our freedom as a reason for not submitting to the authorities over us. We're not supposed to use our freedom as an excuse for that kind of evil, dissension, division, or, or anything else. Edmund Clowney, again, a, a quote from Edmund Clowney, says, Every Christian needs to learn the secret of freedom. Freedom in bondage to the Lord and in humility toward people. Peter never forgot that his Lord had washed his feet. As Jesus girded himself with a towel, we must also gird ourselves with humility in order to serve one another. The lesson of submission and freedom is particularly important, however, for those who must bear subjection in their daily life. Theirs is a special privilege. They find that they can serve the Lord in serving others. Their humble witness can powerfully show the love of Christ. Peter addresses them in particular to teach the humility that all must learn. You see, we're called to live as free slaves. Then when we get to verse 17, basically Peter gives a very, a very simple summary of what the lives of free slaves look like. He says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, when he says honor everyone, we again see that is it, it, the tense that's in is also the aorist imperative. The same as be subject, that sense of urgency to make a decision, to be definitive. It, it's that sense of command. So, so we're commanded to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, but we are also commanded to honor everyone. Honor everyone. Now, it, let's look again at 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so I think it's very interesting for us to recognize that we do honor everyone, but that that honor, that honor is determined by the place God has put them in. And John Piper makes a very good point when he says there's an appropriate honor based on the role God has given them. And so, for example, the honor that we show to a police officer is different than the honor we show to a criminal. We, we honor both because both are made in the image of God. Right? But we honor a criminal by making sure he has a fair trial, that, that his punishment is suitable for the crime, that we, we still treat them with honor and dignity. Because underlying it all, that, that's our command, to honor everyone. And it's because they are image bearers, created in God's image. So we treat them with honor, we treat them with dignity, we find ways to bestow on them the honor that they have in being created in God's image. So honor everyone. We're commanded to do that. The following three things 
could actually be translated, keep loving the brotherhood, keep fearing God, keep honoring the emperor. And it's interesting because as we look at the fact that, that we're called to keep loving the brotherhood, it should remind us in this letter that Peter has already talked about that. In 1 Peter 1.22, if you remember, he writes, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You see, we're called to honor everyone. There's no excuse for us not to show them honor. But to the, the brothers and sisters we have in Christ, we're called to something deeper. We're called to love them. We're called to love them as Christ has loved us. We're called to, to love them in a more intimate way, as it says, sincerely, earnestly, from a pure heart. So we're called to honor everyone, but a special relationship in the body of Christ as we're called to continue loving one another. Keep fearing God. Keep fearing God. And if you remember, even in that, we, we look back at 1 Peter 1.17, where Peter wrote, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You see, we're called to honor everyone. We're called to love the brotherhood, but we're called only to fear God. You see, only God is worthy of our reverent fear. He's the one that is deserving of it. He's the one that we must fear most because whenever times do come when we have to decide to be disobedient, we have to be willing to be motivated by our reverent fear for him and joyfully accept the consequences of that. Right? That's what it ultimately comes down to. As much as we might honor everyone else, we, we ultimately are called to see God in a higher light, a greater reverence, a greater honor, a greater respect. That's what free slaves do. So honor everyone. Keep loving the brotherhood. Keep fearing God. And then we see him come back around to say, keep honoring the emperor. And, and we've just looked at the fact that we're commanded to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You see, we fear God, but we honor the emperor. And, and honestly, we honor the emperor because we fear God. Let me give you a, another similar summary of the lives of free slaves in Titus 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And that's the picture we have in, in our command to be subject. We, we recognize that as free slaves, we honor everyone. We love the brotherhood. We fear God. We honor the emperor. Well, in conclusion, let me give you one more long quote from Edmund Clowney. This will make you want to run right out and buy the commentary, okay? But, but I, I couldn't say it any better. He summarizes this passage this way. Peter does not argue that we should be lowly before others because we're lowly before God. He does the opposite. He stresses the privileged position to which God has exalted us. We have been brought near to God as priests, saints, sons and daughters, because we are God's own possession. Beloved of the Lord, we need not cherish our own dignity. Indeed, we may not. For the Lord's sake, for our fellow Christians' sake, for the world's sake, we must be ready to subordinate ourselves to others. 
We submit ourselves for the world's sake so that our good deeds may be a witness to them or a testimony against them. We submit ourselves for our fellow Christians' sake out of sacrificial love for them. We submit ourselves for God's sake because we honor his image in our fellow creatures and because we respect his ordering of our lives, but especially because we gratefully seek to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us. And Father, we know that there are many things in your word that are hard and challenging. It is not always easy to be obedient, but we know that by your spirit, you have empowered us to be able to walk in obedience to your word. And Lord, we ask that you would do that, that you would help us to be willing to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Ultimately, because we desire to reflect your glory, we want the world to be able to see the truth about who you are. And then, Father, if they do hate us, Lord, let it be that because they're offended by the gospel. So, Father, help us to set aside our rights. Help us to love passionately the brothers and sisters of Christ. Help us to fear God. And ultimately, help us to honor the authorities you've placed us under for your sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.